for three decades, Baker Hostetler has hosted its legislative seminar among the premier annual public policy showcases on Capitol Hill. Though COVID-19 forced a hiatus in 2020, we are back, finding new ways for you to hear firsthand from Democrats and Republicans in the House and Senate on the latest legislative developments on tax, infrastructure, healthcare, trade, energy policy, and more. I'm Leanne Lee, and you're listening to Baker Hosts. Our guest today is Democratic Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey. Now in his second full term in the Senate, he serves on the Judiciary Committee, where he plays a leading role in criminal justice reform. He is also a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, the Environment and Public Works Committee, and the Small Business Committee. Let's listen in. This is former Congressman Mike Ferguson. I lead the federal policy team at Baker Hostetler. Thanks for joining us for the final version of our 32nd annual legislative seminar. We have a very special guest batting cleanup today. He was a football player, but he can bat cleanup too. I'm, I'm joined as always by my friend and colleague, former Congressman Heath Schuler. Heath, great to be with you today for this final, final session. Yes, thanks, Mike. It's going to be a great day, uh, Corey. We're so excited to have you on, and you know what a what a, a great timing to have you on so many different ways. So uh, thanks for participating today again. So so before we get started, I need I want to give a special thank you to Lindsay Sonich from our Baker Hosteller team. She has been coordinating behind the scenes all of our webinars this year. It has not been an easy task with congressional schedules and votes and everything else. We've had some changes, and we've had to. We've had to be able to work on the fly here sometimes, and Lindsay's done an amazing job. So, Lindsay, thanks so much for all of your work. And I'm very, very pleased now to, to introduce our special guest. Uh, Senator Cory Booker has, has been a guest on this program before. He really made a name for himself as the mayor of the biggest city in the greatest state in the union, <laughs> the state of New Jersey. He was a, a visionary and innovative leader of the city of Newark and he has now been in the U.S. Senate for several years. He uh, made a further name for himself when he ran for president recently. And I know, Corey, you said that that, that experience helped make you a better senator, too. So interested in hearing more about that. But without any further ado, welcome to the program, Senator Cory Booker from New Jersey. Uh, listen, Congressman, I'm, I'm uh, grateful to be with you all again. Uh, I'm grateful for the expertise at your firm, so many people from your team have been uh, helpful and supportive to me to be a better lawmaker, a better leader. And I'm just grateful for the friendships that we have and happy to be grilled by two men who are, <laughs> who are uh, so brilliant and experienced. Uh, I'm ready for it. I've been, I've been working out every day this week, just getting prepared for this, uh, you know, uh, this time in the ring with you two. <laughs> I, I don't know that I'm much of a challenge, but Heath is a pretty big fellow. So, uh. <laughs> yeah, quarterbacks are soft. You know that, Corey. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's very true. That's very true. Not the guys, the real blue collar working guys like us tight ends. That's right. Yeah. Well, I, I remember very well our conversation about a year ago when I was sort of going along with the conversation as a football fan and I was letting you two star athletes to chat about all sorts of interesting things, which was, which was great stuff. But we'll, and we'll get to some of that because there's some interesting sports-related policy issues that we're going to talk about today. Heath is much, much better one to, to chat about those than me. But Corey, let me start off with what's going on, some of the hot issues right now. 
you know, your leadership is trying to cobble together this uh, coalition on this infrastructure package. There's been kind of some fits and starts with whether that's going to be coupled with a budget resolution and a reconciliation bill. What's the latest and what do you, how do you think this plays out? Well, look, I, I think that we all as Americans should, should just step back and recognize what has happened in really the span of the three of our lifetimes. Uh, we were a nation that believed, like businesses have to, that you invest in the things that give you the best returns. America led the planet Earth in investing in the things that businesses have to invest in. Quality of your employees, the your physical plant, staying ahead of the competition. That's staying ahead of the competition is research. Quality of your employees is education. Uh, and your physical plant is your, your infrastructure. So we were ranked the top in the globe for doing that. And it was one of the reasons why we ushered in at that time, obviously India and China are passing us, but the biggest expansion of the middle class that the planet Earth has ever seen. So we inherited, in terms of physical plant, the best house on the block, on the global block, from our grandparents. And now what we've done with that is we've trashed it. And we right now have about a trillion to two trillion dollars of just infrastructure deficit for that 20th century infrastructure, just to get the 20th century infrastructure going. For example, you go from Boston to DC, that's the Northeast corridor, corridor the busiest rail line uh, in all of North America. It goes half an hour slower than it did in the 1960s. Uh, I, I just was with Secretary Buttigieg in an open car, so you could see going through these bridges that were built more than a century ago that are inadequate and crumbling, literally corroding as we speak. And so, so this is the question as us Americans, is what are we going to do about it? Now, I have very strong feelings that we do like every generation of Americans did. The whole, the whole Erie Canal, building canal systems, was a bold, visionary national project. The aeronautics, the airplanes, building airports all around this big national vision. Uh, a great Republican president, Eisenhower, said that we're going to put a trillion dollars in today's money in uh, building out uh, national highways. My mom was just telling me what it used to be like to have to drive to California without a national highway system. So what are what is our generation gonna be known for? Just repairing what our grandparents gave us? Or are we gonna be known for creating globally the best 21st century infrastructure? And so this bipartisan bill, I, I commend it. I haven't looked at all the details. I obviously wanna study down and that's great, but it really is not about doing what I think we need to do, which is to catch up, regain our top spot globally to have the best infrastructure on which businesses build on that platform and more. So I think we're gonna see this bipartisan bill move forward, but count me in the camp of saying, I want this president to go down just like Eisenhower, visionary, bold, massive investments in the kind of things that businesses know create a great return on investment. So, so you have this, the bipartisan bill, right? The plan, the Senate plan that is, you know, I think very politically popular, it doesn't raise taxes. You know, it's something that doesn't happen anymore, which is a bipartisan uh, cooperative effort that some of the progressives and some of the Democratic leadership have been talking about coupling, basically holding hostage, if I'll, my term, the, uh, that very popular bill for a much bigger human infrastructure, whatever, you know, additional plan with a lot more spending, higher taxes. Is that politically smart? to not do something that's super popular that, you know, probably the broad middle of America says, hey, they, they're actually getting something done in a bipartisan way, building, you know, infrastructure, roads, bridges. Is it smart to not do that eventually if, if it means it's coupled with a bigger package, which 
frankly, the margins are so thin, it might be hard to do. Again, I, I'm telling you right now, the, the question that history is going to look upon, China built 18,000 miles of high-speed rail very recently, and we still are debating whether we want rail in the South or in, to connect Northern California to Southern California. The question really is, to me, and again, leadership is not always about popularity. It's about doing what's right for your nation for the next generation, planting trees often under whose uh, shade you may not even sit. And so the question is, is who are we going to be? This plan, which is smaller than Eisenhower's, is that enough? Or do we do something that's going to take some sacrifice? Now, I'm stunned at the profligate spending of government over the last uh, 30 years. I mean, we spent alone in the Middle East $5 trillion to, to, to conduct these wars. It's not like America didn't find that money. <laughs> we came up with trillions of dollars in the Middle East in wars, I, I, frankly, I'm against, uh, and engagements. And what have we done and seen here? So what is a politically popular thing? I, I, I'm not sure, and I'm, there's gonna be a lot of discussions. I'm part of Schumer's leadership team, so I hear some of them. But uh, I'm just saying right now, in the United States of America, I don't know if you heard this, but I, I ran for president. And, and I was stunned that when I was traveling from Iowa to South Carolina, going places with no access to broadband, this is the United States of America. Our competitors from South Korea to Germany have near universal penetration. And we still have places where folks don't even have access to broadband. And so I, I'm sorry, when I was mayor, you talked about me being great mayor, I was willing to do things that were not popular. I was willing to do things that weren't popular in my party. Heck, we got 40% of our kids in high-performing charter schools that outperformed the suburbs. You know this, Mike, is that popular in my party? Uh, but you know what? Black children, this is the number one city in America for what's called beat the odds schools. Kids uh, who are low-income kids going on to college. If you're a black kid in Newark, which is the majority of our kids, your chances of going to college uh, went up 400% since I became mayor. And so I, I'm, I'm sorry, this is not a time to ask what's popular. This is ask, time to ask what's right. And we are the United States of America. Most Americans like me who have passports travel around are, are almost like you go to other cities, uh, nations, you see their airports, you see their high-speed rail, you come back here and you're wondering what happened in the last 50 years. Real quick follow-up on that. I know Heath wants to get in here, but on if a tax package passes, a, a reconciliation package with tax code changes, do you think the SALT deduction will, will be changed? I'm, I'm asking you as a fellow New Jerseyan, right? Uh, I know Gottheimers and others are working so hard on this in the House. What do you think? Do, does that change? I, 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 have no, uh, I, I, have, I have no problem seeing the highest marginal rate go up a little bit. But dear God, give us the state and local tax deduction back. It's, 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 to me, it's, it is abjectly uh, uh, unconscionable that that got taken away. Uh, so I, I, I stand on the Gottheimer side of the, of the Democratic Party. Uh, it's, he, by the way, his ego is that he will love that we're calling it the Gottheimer side. Somebody's got to clip this part and, and, and send it to him. But uh, count me in that camp that wants to see uh, state and local tax deduction return. And by the way, there are some people in my party, the progressive wing, that might say that's a gift for the rich. I am sitting here right now talking to you. I'm the only senator that lives in a black and brown community below the poverty line. Median income here in my neighborhood is about $14,000, uh, according to the 10 years ago census. I, I know it's risen since then. I pay, you know, there, there's a $10,000 uh, in state and local taxes for my home here, my three-family home, 
uh, I'm paying well over that $10,000 sort of deduction, uh, $10,000 allowance. So it's crazy. This is not about the wealthy. It's about working class New Jersey families who are struggling to make ends meet when childcare is going up, prescription drugs are going up, college education is growing up, all of that. So yeah, I stand with Josh. Corey, on the uh, recent decision that the Supreme Court justice, j- the Supreme Court just made regarding we played at the wrong time. We yes. played ball at the wrong time. <laughs> Completely <laughs> wrong. <time. laughs> can you can you tell us a? a it's kind of a two part question. Yeah. And, um, I, so the first question is: Tell us a little about your legislation that you have, and how that what that would entail for the student athletes. And I think the most important thing is: Is there anything in that legislation, or will there be something to protect the smaller schools? Because kind of in my network and the people that I communicate with, you know, I've, I've spoken to the, you know, all the power five schools and they really believe that, that there's going to be this huge division that's going to ultimately happen between the larger schools, the, those schools that are in, you know, large media markets and then the smaller schools. I mean, my, my son's a, a student athlete now at Appalachian state, they do extremely well. In, in football and other sports, but, you know, I mean, relatively speaking, they're not in the Power Five conference, so what's going to happen to those type schools moving forward? Because they can't aff- afford a lot of their programs now, even through COVID, so many smaller schools dropped some of their sports, and how does that impact Title IX and so forth? Right, so I appreciate the way you asked that question, but can, can you allow me just give me some latitude to give a little bit of a pullback before I answer that spe- specificity? Absolutely. I, I, ha- I have had a bone to pick with the NCAA since I started seeing the ridiculousness when I played ball. And I went to a very reputable school that, that didn't abide by the four of the NCAA. They set their own standards at Stanford. So I don't want to lump all schools into this. I had a great conversation with the leadership at Notre Dame recently. It was like, please, let's address these things. We find them morally offensive as well. So there are a lot of schools out there that, that agree with what I'm about to say, but the NCAA is a 15 to $20 billion business. And you literally have kids who are struggling to make it. Remember Shabazz Napier who said, I can't afford to eat on some night. So I was came from a, a middle-class family out to Sanford. My parents could afford to fly out to see me, supplement the, what the scholarship fell short. But what I saw in, in my NCAA days is that their universities are making millions of dollars off of their athletes, no guarantee of an education, no guarantee of even the time necessary to study to get an education. If you, if you put some uh, people in seats for the first two years but blow out your knee, uh, you lose your scholarship, you might be two, three years out having to take money out of your own pocket to cover your medical expenses for a spinal injury or a traumatic brain injury or more. I could go on with the things that just like people who watch sports like I do, love college ball, don't realize that these industry, these universities and the NCAA are making millions of dollars and so many ch- young students, and I've talked to so many of these athletes and student groups, find themselves with a raw deal and not an education going in their own pocket to pay for medical expenses, trying to get those last credits through their own pocket and like they were sold a bill of goods. And so what I said simply, uh, for years now, because the NCA would give me lip service. They would tell me, Senator, seven years ago, hey, what you're saying is right. We should have uh, uh, lifelong scholarships. Uh, we should have more fair uh, health care. But they've done nothing about it. And so what I'm simply saying is for there should be a simple basic bill of rights for kids, especially because the NCA has been able to escape even 
enforceable protocols on things from concussion protocols that protect their athlete safety to even sexual assault protocols. Get this, you're now a, a coach whose financial incentive and job is incentivized by winning this big game. Your, your key player just gets a, a, a serious hit. You put him over the sideline, hey, can you go back in? Well, that kid should be probably sent to the hospital because he got such a hit. hit, hit. The, all the wrong incentives right now are, are in this, in this profit-making business, not protecting the well-being, the safety, the education, and the health of athletes. And so I, I propose an Athletes' Bill of Rights that really is just about protecting that, those basic standards. And there's enough money, not just the Power Five, in the, in the money revenue-generating sports, there is enough money there to create for college athletes writ large basic insurance for your, for your health and, and for the kind of scholarships that I believe kids students should get uh, and a few other basic things. To say there's not enough money when the highest paid person in most states, the government employee is a coach or basketball coach. To say there's not enough money when the NCAA tournament alone uh, makes hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars for the NCAA, not to mention the BCS Bowl and more. And so I, I'm just a big person that says enough is enough. There's too many stories, too many kids dying literally uh, uh, from heat exhaustion and more being pushed to create profits for some. But I do have some latitude to differentiate, now getting to your question, between you know, the power five and a division two or division three school. And, and that's why I think that we should create a more sharing of the, a lot of the revenue to make sure that even those kids who are playing uh, uh, sports have some kind of floor to them. And it's interesting to me, the conversations that I've been getting with, with uh, athletic directors and others who feel like they're in this terrible trap and there's gotta be an off-ramp soon because it's just an arms race right now. You know this, you go, these yeah. schools as opposed to pouring the money into programs that help athletes writ large, they're pouring monies into, into facilities now that some professional teams don't have as nice. They're, 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 they're competing against each other for coaches with the salaries going higher and higher and higher. There is a better way to make what we call student athletes the center again of college sports and not the peripheral afterthought uh, um, with all the money that's going on. Let's, let's invest that money in making sure that athletes' experience is about their safety and their education and not about just continuing to drive profits of which they share none of. That's very good. Yeah, um, you know, and I think so much that you have touched on, you know, how, how do you see this policy going forward? Do you think that there has been enough attention that the NCAA is going to make this decision or is it going to have to be legislated through Congress? Um, so I, I don't trust the NCAA to make this. I've had the same conversation with them for years now. And so uh, I, this is what's going to happen. This is where I see this whole playing out. We have the leverage in Congress right now. We do. They need, uh, with all these different states passing their name, image, and likeness rules, um, they need to come to the Congress for, for, as you all know, federal preemption. In other words, let's create a single standard. I'm like, okay, I can, I can see that happening. But in exchange for that, you are going to protect this health, safety, well-being, and educational prospects of athletes, period. Because in a 50-50 in a, in a Senate, every senator has a lot of power and there's no way I'm going to let anything happen that gives the federal preemption without uh, basic protections for athletes. The great thing about it is uh, on the Commerce Committee with Senators Moran and, and, and on the Republican side, Cantwell, others have been incredibly open to negotiating something that protects athletes 
uh, as well as deals with federal preemption. So I think there's a there's a pathway in the Senate to get something done. The NCAA, I have to say, has a difficult job. It's not even hurting cats. They're trying to, it's like Noah, trying to get all these different animals on the same boat. So I'm very sympathetic to, uh, uh, to the head of the NCAA. But we have the forcing mechanism. And just like people don't know the story of college football, it was Roosevelt who, when college players were dying time and time again, called the sort of the leaders of college football up to, up to the White House and basically said, let's create some health and safety standards forced it upon you guys to, to and it really that saved college football uh, and, and was a precursor to the forming of the NCAA. We need to get back to the federal government being concerned about the safety and well-being of college athletes. I think we have an opportunity here. I'm hoping we can join arms in a bipartisan way. There's a sign of that happening uh, and, and, and get that done. If that happens, my washed up athlete cred will go a lot higher. Well, I think you're right. Something has to happen because I've been very fortunate. I volunteer coach and at, uh, at the high school that I coach, in the last two years, we've sent 12 kids to play uh, Division One football. And so they've done wow. extremely well, and there's an, an entire group behind them. But I'm starting to hear from parents, well, which schools are going to be or which yeah. states are going to be the best for my child yes. based upon income and based upon them having opportunities to make money outside of uh, the classroom. Yeah, because so well, I think that's going to, I mean, you know, because the states are starting to play that now. I mean, you know, and I still follow so many of those kids and I'm, they're, they're promoting themselves today. They're promoting themselves on sh social media today saying, if you're interested in my name or my likeness or advertising, let me know. So no. it's going to change the dynamics of, of college football altogether. Considerably, considerably. I'm going to turn it back over to maybe some other <laughs> policy stuff that uh, I can talk well, about this all day. So you and I hey, both, you and I both. Anytime you want to talk, I'm always here for you. No, I love it. I, I just wish you and I were playing now and not back. First of all, I probably wouldn't be able to compete now seeing some of these. Uh, Me either. Yeah. But this, the chance to monetize your social media accounts, it's just like a lot of great opportunity out there that I'm excited that these athletes are going to get a chance to partake in. Corey, let me, let me ask you about another issue you've been a real leader on. It's um, criminal justice reform, police reform in particular, more recently. I know you and Tim Scott have been working on pulling a package together, trying to find a bipartisan solution there. There have been deadlines and deadlines have floated away. I have to say, I think this was these were some of your best moments in some of the presidential debates. I, for one, thought you had the best of Joe Biden on some of these issues. But he's the president now, and he's yeah. your partner, right, in some of this stuff. So what, what's the latest on, on police reform, for instance? And, and is there an opportunity to, to find a bipartisan solution there? Yeah, my most uh, ignominious moment now that he's president is that at some point in the debates, we were talking about marijuana. It's ridiculous that we have a nation that there were more marijuana arrests in recent years than there were all violent crime arrests combined. That means there's people who have criminal convictions for doing things that two of the last four presidents admitted to doing. And so Biden came and said, you know, I'm against, you know, legalization. And I, I made the mistake of saying to the Joe Biden, Mr. Vice President, I think you must be smoking pot. You must be high right now to say something like that. And my mom was not happy that I accused a vice president of, of being under the influence of marijuana. So I've apologized for that, by the way. <laughs> so look, Tim is a friend of mine. He, he's this is the only time in American history that uh, three black guys have served at the same time in the United States Senate, three big, bald black guys, no less, because all of us are, are follically challenged. 
but Tim is a is a guy who's had uh, gave a very moving speech on the Senate floor years ago about how many times he's been stopped by the Capitol Police. And he and I both share the indignities and the fear uh, uh, for moments in our lives of, of being stopped by police, of having being accused of stealing things and, and really feeling like you're, you were a hair trigger as I've had guns drawn on me before from losing your life uh, in situations like that. So we both have this sense that things have got to change. And we also both share this sense of understanding law enforcement more than many senators do because I ran a police department in a city that the number one demand for my voters in every election I ran was for more public safety, uh, to do something about the violent crime in our city. And so we have a very balanced perspective on this and we've been working in good faith, trying to come to some uh, agreement. Uh, he and I were texting today about this. I was able to do something I never imagined to get groups like the FOP uh, to agree with me on a bill. But Tim and I are still working because the FOP, besides the largest of all the police unions, isn't the only one out there. So, so we are at a point in America where we have policing that, that doesn't have the standards of transparency. I believe we should. And frankly, a lot of police groups agree with me as well, that there are practices that are used today that should be banned, like carotid holds, that there are uh, measures that we should have. Uh, as we all know, run things, you can't, you can't measure it, you can't manage it. And so there's a lot of data we should be collecting nationally that we're not collecting. So there's a lot of things that we have general agreement on, but I'm gonna tell you right now, I think you're right, time is running out. This Congress is moving very quickly. There's a crowded agenda on the Senate floor. And if we don't do something soon, we will lose a historic moment where we really should rise to that moment and, and, and make the reforms necessary. And again, as, I, as, as Tim and I have talked, if, if the FOP, like one of, I, I told a great guy named Jim Pascoe, you know, I viewed him as like an ogre before I got there because these guys are tough, tough union and have not shown, in my opinion, the level of desire for reform. But Jim and I, as one with another law enforcement agency, had three weeks of negotiation where I came to have a lot of respect for him. I've always had respect for his membership. We came to some accord. Uh, and if we can, a Democrat from New Jersey and the head of the, the president, rather, of the, the administrative head, rather, of the FOP, can come to a lot of agreements. I'm sure hoping that Tim and I uh, could work the final details out and get a bill done. I would think the politics of that would be good too though, right? I mean, I've heard from a number of my democratic friends and lamented how, you know, the defund the police, you know, probably hurt in the elections last year. I mean, you're you're a guy who like you said, you ran a police department. You you know, your your constituents were asking for better, you know, better uh, security, better law enforcement. I would think of uh, coming together on a on a bill with a solution, a bipartisan effort would would be good politics for both sides, right? Yeah, look, I mean, look who won, look who at least is winning in the New York City race, a former cop who knows that the often the communities are that are that are most underserved by policies that help for public safety are are minority communities. Now, at the end of the day, you 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 talk to anybody in my neighborhood, and they are very sophisticated to know that what the things that often lower crime are not necessarily more police in the streets, but more economic opportunity, more investment in education and more. So there's a sophistication in our communities about what creates safety, but you're right. This is a, I think this is a, not just a political win for America, but one of the reasons why a lot of the law enforcement groups I've been negotiating with have leaned in is because they just know we are losing ground because of the erosion of trust uh, amongst communities and law enforcement. 
And I'll give you an example of that for a fellow New Jerseyan. We have had a 90% drop this year versus previous years, 90% drop in applications to be a New Jersey state trooper. 90% drop. The, the, the esteem of these uh, agencies is going down. And that's not that's actually not good for the public to have a less of a pool to select excellent officers from. So we are in crisis in America. And th this is a moment where all of us, from people who are concerned about civil rights, about just and equitable policing, as well as those people who are concerned about law enforcement, this is a time to act. And if we don't, and I, and I think there's a 50, 50 chance whether we get something done or not, if we don't act, this is another shameful moment for Congress. And I know I'm at the center of that, and that's why I've been bending and contorting myself in every way to try to make a, a bill that can attract people on both sides of the aisle. Well, we certainly wish you well in that endeavor. It's so important for the country. It's important for our culture, our kids, you know, that we have both a fair criminal justice and policing uh, in our communities, and we have trust in those folks that are protecting us. You're a leader on a lot of different things. You're involved in a lot of different things, and we know your time is so precious. So Heath and I, Heath, I know you, you, you and I both talk about how we love, we love talking to Cory Booker. And uh, Corey, you're a great, you're a great guest. Thank yeah, but you. no, I have to get something off my chest, man. I, I mean, Mike, <laughs> Mike, I mean, just like look at Heath's background. Do you see this? Like it's this wood panel. I mean, there's a whole forest represented there. It's so sophisticated. Look, you and I just got like a wall. We just pulled out a little a, a hammer. He's got like he's got this grandeur and esteem about him. You and I are just just two Jersey guys trying to keep up. You know, mine's drywall. I think. Yeah. I don't know what's back there, but. Uh... Now, I have my Raiders helmet, my Saints, my uh, the Washington football team. I have, I have my football stuff, but I, I just think I, that I got my right. colleagues uh, <laughs> that I've served with right here. So you you have a you have a presidential background. We've got you know we've got junior senator from New Jersey background. I think I have a baseball somewhere that I caught at a minor league game in Trenton once. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't know. Um, yes. Corey, thank you for your time. It's your, you guys. You guys, I really, I really enjoy this, and I appreciate uh, your, your the perspective that you two have, and for our country, and 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 frankly, you you are both patriots, and I hope I hope we can have more conversations in the future. Absolutely, thank you, Corey. Thank you. We're closing out our thirty second annual legislative seminar. We thank our guests for being with us today, and for this whole seminar series, and keep us. Uh, Keep us in mind next year. We are going to be back in person, we hope, next year. And Heath and I will be back interviewing guests. And we hope we'll all be together in person in Washington next year. Heath, thanks so much. You're a great, great partner in these endeavors. Thank you, Mike. It's been a great, great uh, session we've had. Thank you, Senator Booker, Mike, and Heath. If you have any questions for Mike and Heath, their contact information is in the show notes. As always, Thanks for listening to Baker Hosts. Comments heard on Baker Hosts are for informational purposes and should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. Listeners should not act upon the information provided on Baker Hosts without first consulting with a lawyer directly. The opinions expressed on Baker Hosts are those of the participants appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information about our practices and experience, please visit BakerLaw.com.